You'll find Leviticus 25 with me. We'll be there in a second. Leviticus 25. I'd like to welcome you to our monthly Q&A night, where you ask a question and then I sometimes answer it, sometimes don't, don't really do that. Our question this evening is, how do the Old Testament laws on usury affect us today? So let's begin with that word, usury. It's not a terribly common word today. So let's start with the definition. The Oxford English Dictionary says, usury is the practice of making unethical or immoral monetary loans that unfairly enrich the lender. So we're talking about loans. Um, Our English word comes from the Latin word usura, meaning interest, and that's usually where the unethical part of the loan comes in, uh, an unusually high interest rate. Um, So a usurous loan would be one that had an excessively high interest rate, um, a transaction that ostensibly is to help. I mean, someone gets a loan, gets money because they need money, and so this loan, which is supposed to help them, ends up impoverishing them even further and plunging them even deeper into debt when they can't repay it, and now they owe twice as much as they originally needed, or three times or four times, it just sort of keeps going. Uh, Usury is a a predatory practice. In modern parlance, we would call a usurer something like a loan shark, something like that. So, uh, as the question uh, understands, the Torah, the law of Moses, does address this issue, the issue of lending money and interest and usury, addresses this topic several times. So we'll address, by simply surveying those passages, Um, What I find most interesting when we study the law of Moses is not just to notice God said, thou shalt this. Um, Within the law, God is often uh, revealing his underlying logic for this. And sometimes we have to think about it for a minute. But there is a logic to these laws. Um, There's a logic to holiness. It's the right way to live in God's world. So we'll look at those laws. And then we will look at some places outside of the law of Moses where those laws are being invoked and spoken of by the prophets And then we'll think about what those Old Testament laws might mean for people like us, New Testament Christians. So, let's begin in the law. Let me say one thing up front before we read Leviticus 25. Um, It is easy to read the law of Moses anachronistically. To read this law, which relates to the ancient Israelites, to read this law with our modern glasses on. And we see something described and we just think about our lives before we think about their lives and the original context in which those laws were given. And I think that plays itself out in in this subject. Um, Almost all of our experience with loans and interest payments, um, almost all of our our relationships and those sorts of things are with big banks and big financial institutions, and it's quite an impersonal sort of thing, and there's this vast, intricate financial system, economic system we're a part of, and so... You know, we, we hear this, we, we read about loans and stuff, and we're thinking about our mortgage, and we're thinking about a car loan, we're thinking about a credit card. But let's just begin by saying, before we jump to that, before we jump to our world, Israelite society, as reflected in the law of Moses, simply didn't have this complex, formal financial structure. It just didn't. Their economy looked almost nothing like ours. Um, loans were normally made from person to person. And you can tell that in the laws about them. It's reflecting sort of a person-to-person economy. So laws regulating these don't really describe how the Israelites are to relate to large financial institutions. They describe how one person is to relate to another who's perhaps fallen under hard times. So that's one thing I just want to say up front. Don't 
jump too quickly to our world. Let's stay in their world first and understand what these laws meant, what they meant in their world. Leviticus 25, this is verse 35. Leviticus 25 and verse 35. Um, This law is a part of a very interesting chapter. This whole chapter of Leviticus 25 is an interesting chapter on the year of Jubilee, which is an interesting concept. The whole chapter, though, addresses Israel's economic life in one way or another. Here's one aspect of it, verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So, verse 35 imagines a situation where a family member, we could perhaps broaden it out to just a member of, of Israel, but at least uh, initially a family member falls into poverty for one reason or another. And we could imagine situations in which there would be a, a temptation on the part of the, the rest of the family to sort of be vindictive or be self-righteous to say, you know, look at what a fool you've been or it serves you right or you must have had it coming or you must have broken the covenant and we sort of... We sort of um, exclude them. And I'm told in in their culture, which is an honor-shame culture, the temptation often, when someone had really made a mess of things, the temptation would be to shun them, to exclude them from the family, to to get the shame away from us instead of helping them. But this law says Israelites are not to let such instincts determine their behavior. They are to be as generous with members of their family who are in need as they are to the stranger. Verse 35, which is an interesting sort of a logical move to make. Um, there are laws, there are a lot of laws in the law of Moses about how generous Israel was to be to strangers, to outsiders, to immigrants, to people passing through. And God will often talk to Israel about and remind them about how they were once strangers. They were once, you know, wander, wanderers, uh, relying on the generosity of others and most of all of God. And so they are to remember that. And so that's sort of a given is the generosity to the stranger in verse 35. And he says, when your family falls into that, you're not to treat them any worse than them. You are to welcome them as you would the stranger. So within that circumstance, verse 36 says that any money lent to your impoverished brother is to be interest-free. The logic of the law is something like this. His desperation, your poor brother's desperation is not an opening for you to make money off of him or to enslave him with debt. Your poor brother is to be helped, not preyed upon. And your help needs to actually help and not be a pretense for your profit or something like that. There's also interesting things when you read the Law of Moses, and a good commentary will point this out. It will compare the Law of Moses to other ancient law codes, of which we have many in the ancient world. And it's very interesting to compare and contrast how the law of Moses addresses the subject and how, say, the Code of Hammurabi or some other ancient law code will address it. So I'll read you what this commentator said comparing this law to other ancient laws. Interest-free loans are well attested in ancient financial records and laws laws against taking excessive interest are also known. But Israel is alone in totally prohibiting interest payments on loans to the poor. So in other words, the the interesting thing, the novel thing about the law of Moses 
is that the intent of the law, the, the protection that is, uh, that is trying to be built in, is for the poor. So you have laws about interest-free loans and other laws. You have laws against usury. But the logic of this law and the intent of it to, to protect the poor is, is a, a distinctly mosaic thing. Um, and in general, I think we can say this. The law of Moses is unique compared to other ancient law codes in its concern for the least of these. And that is something that the law of Moses is concerned about. I'll throw this in here. This is, this is another sort of telling of the same law, but with less detail, but I'll just mention it. Exodus 22 and verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. That's Exodus 22 and verse 25. Uh, The law also throws in this reminder. Notice this in verse 38. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. God says when you're thinking about how to treat your brother, you should remember how the God who's giving you this law has treated you. God's generosity to his people is an example to them about how they should treat each other. Do you remember the land that you have? How did you get it? given to you. It's even better than an interest-free loan. It's just an outright gift. Remember that. Remember that when your brother falls on hard times. Reminds me of a parable about this very idea in Matthew 18 where a master forgives a huge debt to one servant and then he goes and tries to extract comparative lunch money from a fellow servant. And it angers the master because he didn't remember the generosity he was given whenever he dealt with his fellow servants. Or as John said at 1 John 4.11 If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So that's the first law about this. The second one is in Deuteronomy 23. Go with me there. Deuteronomy 23. In verse 19. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 19. Uh, This uh, this law uh, gives another little wrinkle, an exception. This is Deuteronomy 23 and verse 19. Deuteronomy 23 and verse 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession, um, that you are entering to take possession of it. So verse 19 says much the same thing as Leviticus 25. Loans made to a brother, that is a fellow Israelite, should not carry interest. However, verse 20, Israel is permitted to lend with interest to someone who is not a part of the covenant community. That is permitted in the law of Moses. Now, of course, um, as is the case with all the laws, this law is to be read in concert with all the other laws. And so there are other laws about how you treat the foreigner, which we just referenced a minute ago. And so verse 20 is not somehow an excuse to loan shark the foreigner and take advantage of the foreigner. That's not the idea either. But this law does say there's something about being a part of the covenant, com- a covenant community that made God not just forbid usury. God doesn't just forbid excessive interest within Israel. He forbids interest at all in, the, in loans that are being given between Israelites. So that's really what the law of Moses has to say on the subject of, of, uh, of loans and interest. Now... That's not all the Old Testament has to say. So what I want to do now is to go to a couple places where the Old Testament applies this law and talks to God's people about how they are or maybe are not living according to these laws. Ezekiel 18 is the first text I want to look at. 
Turn with me there, Ezekiel 18. <clears throat> so Ezekiel was a prophet to the Babylonian exiles. And he called this rebellious people, which had experienced the exile, to learn from the catastrophe they'd undergone and to rededicate themselves to God's law. But one of the things that happens to Ezekiel, it happens to, to Jeremiah also, is that they respond to this message. They respond to this message to repent and learn from, from their catastrophe with sort of lame cliches and sort of fobbing off blame unto, unto other people. And so it's a very famous passage in Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel 18 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And then here's the proverb they, they were repeating. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son of the soul is mine. The soul who sins shall die. So these exiles had let themselves off the hook, basically by blaming their parents and their grandparents. Here we are in exile. Why? Because mom and dad broke the covenant. Because grandma and grandpa broke the covenant. They broke the covenant. We experienced the, 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 the consequences. They ate the sour grapes, but they didn't get to taste the sourness. We have to taste the sourness for their bad choice. But what God says here is, no, Israel, I want you to take personal responsibility. You are not simply suffering for your father's sins. And what God reveals about himself in this chapter is that he is as responsive to their righteousness or their unrighteousness he is as responsive in their generation to those things as he was in their parents' generation. It is still true that the soul that sins shall die. Not the soul shall die for your parents' sin, but for your own. So, verses 5 through 9, the next paragraph, Ezekiel cites 16 identifying marks of a righteous man. If you live this way, he says, you shall surely live. You shall experience the covenant blessings. You'll begin to experience a great restoration that is coming. Live this way, you shall surely live. And if you look in verse 8, one of those 16 identifying marks of a righteous man he names, verse 8, he who does not lend at interest or take any profit. That is, take any profit off of a loan that he gives to his brother. In verses 10 through 13, he imagines that that righteous man who lived that way, he imagines that that righteous man then has a wicked son who does the opposite of his father, and notice what the wicked son, the imaginary wicked son, among his sins, verse 13, he lends at interest and takes profit. And his point in verse 13 is that the wicked son will not ride the coattails of his father's righteousness. But the end of verse 13, he shall surely die and his blood shall be on himself. God is always responsive to the righteousness or the sin of each generation. So, what I think this is, is an illustration that the law, this law about lending with interest is not some obscure law in the law of Moses. It's, it's not unrelated to a person's character and integrity and morality. The righteous man, Ezekiel says, among all these things, the righteous man sees his brother in need and he seeks to help. The wicked man sees his brother in need and he sees an opportunity to take advantage of that, to take advantage of his desperation. What Ezekiel says is, how our money, how we use our money, says something very real about the kind of person that we are and how we view someone else's desperation. Is this an opportunity for me or an opportunity for me to help them? 
in just a few chapters, um, God will describe many things that are wrong in, in Israel that led to the exile. And just notice this, one of the things in the laundry list, they take bribes and shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain of your neighbors by extortion, but me you have forgotten, declares the Lord. So this is a great concern of the prophet Ezekiel among the many, many issues. It brings us to a second text. This is Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. So Nehemiah is one of the leaders of the return from exile on the other side of Ezekiel's preaching. And his big initial project at the beginning of the book is to rebuild the walls of this vulnerable city. And he's having all of this opposition from the outside. Um, All these other nations and leaders are sort of um, elbowing in, trying to take advantage of a weakened Jerusalem. So he's fighting off enemies from the outside. But as the work on the walls continue, there are clearly problems within Israel, enemies from within. And we find in Nehemiah 5, Nehemiah 5, that some of the returnees, in particular the farmers it seems, were very poverty stricken. There had been a drought. And their economic condition was being exploited by their brothers. And it's done in this way, Nehemiah 5 and verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what's happening here is they're having to borrow money against their property to feed their families amidst a drought, and in order to pay the the royal taxes that were being levied against them, it had reached such a point of desperation that their children were giving themselves over into indentured servitude to other people. Their property was being lost. So this is Nehemiah's response in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, Nehemiah, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I will call the priests and make them swear to do as they have promised. I also shook out the fold of my garments and said, So may God shake out from every man, from his house, and from his labor, who does not keep this promise, so he may be shaken out and emptied. And all in the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So Nehemiah's response initially is anger. He basically says, How are we supposed to restore God's covenant people, God's covenant nation, while we're busy breaking the covenant. What kind of recipe for success is this? If we, if we break, try to build God's nation by breaking God's law, it's not going to work. How are we going to do that? How are we going to build a nation while we're impoverishing 
our brethren, enslaving our brethren, taking our brethren's property. And so notice, among the sins they need to repent of in verse 8, you're exacting interest each from its brother. Verse 10, let us abandon this exacting of interest. And he even says in verse 11, any property that had changed hands because of this unpaid interest-earning loan sort of situation, any property that had changed hands because of that needs to be returned. And the interest that, that you might think you're owed needs to be forsaken. So Nehemiah is an example of, of holding Israel to account about these laws. We read about the laws, and now Israel was not doing the laws, and the prophet comes along and says, start doing laws. That's what all prophets do. And I do think there's an interesting sort of balance between Ezekiel and Nehemiah. You know, Ezekiel really impresses on us the individual moral dimension of the law. You know, the soul that sins, it shall die, and the individuality of keeping this law and what it means about our own personal character. Nehemiah comes along and he really emphasizes the corporate dimension of this law and the corporate logic. And he says, we're trying to build a nation and you can't build a nation on economic predation. Your brother is to be helped, not taken advantage of. That's what Nehemiah says. One more passage on the, on the, the rest of the Old Testament referencing of this. That's Psalm 15. Find Psalm 15 with me. Psalm 15 opens with a question. <clears throat> and the entire rest of the psalm is an answer to the question. Verse 1. Psalm 15 and verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The psalm opens with a question. Who is worthy to enter God's presence? Who is worthy to go into the holiest place in the world? The tabernacle and then the temple. What kind of person... Does God want to be near him? The rest of the psalm answers that question. And there's a list here of the kind of man. And notice, one of the traits of the holy person, worthy to ascend God's holy hill, to enter God's presence, verse 5, is a man who does not put out his money at interest. The question is, what is his response to the economic desperation of others? Because desperation makes people easy prey for the unscrupulous. Desperate people will do things, will do unwise things that... Non-desperate people will not do. But the man of Psalm 15, when he sees someone else's desperation, he doesn't see an opportunity to take advantage of them and enrich himself. He sees an opportunity to help them, to lend his money without interest. So, we've got the laws about usury and interest, and then we've got applications of the law in the rest of the Old Testament, where one's faithfulness to those laws is a measure of one's character, a measure of one's closeness to God, a measure of... of uh, how much you embody um, the sort of covenant togetherness of Nehemiah. So we've got the law, we've got Old Testament applications, but the question is really pushing us toward this. Is there a New Testament application of all of this? So that brings us to this question. What do Old Testament laws have to say for New Testament Christians? So this is, a, this is actually a very... Uh, th- this question, when I saw the question, I said, oh boy, this is a, you know, open the... Open the uh, what's the expression? can of worms, open a can of worms. Within this question about usury is a much bigger question. Not just how do the Old Testament laws on usury affect us today, but how do Old Testament laws in general affect us today? That's a huge question. What does the law of Moses have to say to people who are not under the law of Moses? What does the Old Testament have to say to people who call themselves New Testament Christians? That's a big question. And we're not going to spend the next 45 minutes delving into it. We could. Let me just hit two high points. Number one, 
To read a book like Galatians or Romans makes absolutely clear that the law of Moses will not justify us. Some of Paul's strongest words were directed at those who led people to believe they would be justified by their adherence to the law of Moses. We are not made righteous by the law of Moses. The law of Moses does many things. It's good at pointing out unrighteousness. It's good at condemning sin. But it is crummy at justifying sinners and making unrighteous people righteous. The law of Moses was a good law. It comes from God, so of course it's good. But it is not suitable to make lawbreakers like us, sinners like us, righteous. And so what Paul argues at great length in Romans 3, for example, is that what sinners need is the righteousness that comes not through the law of Moses, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. What sinners need is the propitiatory blood of Christ applied to them. That's what sinners need. So on the one hand, the law of Moses does not mean to the Christian what it meant to the Jew. It must not mean to the Christian what it meant to the Jew. And if we try to make the law of Moses mean to us what it meant to the Jew, if our adherence to the law is somehow, somehow our covenant badge, our entrance into the kingdom, if that's what we think, not only are we just making a mistake, Paul will say we are repudiating Christ. And we're saying we don't need to sacrifice. What we need is a record of law-keeping. So that's the first sort of high point to hit. The New Testament makes absolutely clear the law of Moses will not justify us. It's not our law. Our adherence to it is not what saves us. That's number one. Yet number two, on the other hand, none of that means we ought to cut the first five books out of our Bibles. None of what we said means that. In Romans 7, Paul falls over himself to uphold the law of Moses as good and as righteous. So, for example, Romans 7 and verse 7, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. You know, it's a very good thing to know what sin is, because sin will kill you. And it's good to know what that is and how that works and why it's so wrong. He says later in the chapter, Romans 7 and verse 12, The law, speaking of the law of Moses, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And the funny thing about Romans, for example, is whenever he's talking about how the law of Moses doesn't justify, he often goes out of his way to quote something from Moses that foretells this thing. That even Moses himself says that his law has a, has a, has a, uh, a vision, has a purpose, but it's, it's, only, it's only provisional, it's only temporary. So what I'm trying to say is there's really two extremes to avoid when it comes to thinking about the law of Moses, two heretical extremes. One extreme is to basically become a Messianic Jew. Messianic Jew tries to adhere to the 613 statutes of the law of Moses as a Christian. They say Jesus is the Messiah and we need to keep all of these things like they did. That's one extreme. To say these laws mean for the Christian exactly what they meant to the Jew. That's one extreme to avoid. The other extreme to avoid would be to become a Marcionite. Marcion was a 2nd century heretic who argued that the God of the New Testament was of a totally different character from the God of the Old Testament. And that Jesus and what he taught was of absolutely different stuff than the God of the Old Testament and what he taught. And so Marcion believed the Old Testament should basically be, basically be cut out of the Bible. And we should just stick with the New in that way. We need to say there is much to be gleaned about the character of God and about the world that he made and about what it is to act like an image-bearing human on God's earth from the law of Moses. If you cut those out of your Bible, you, you really don't even have a New Testament left. You can't even make sense of the rest of the New Testament without it. 
when we understand the logic of the laws, no, we're not trying to live like Jews, trying to earn our covenant merit badge through our law-keeping. But when we understand the logic of these laws, when we understand the mind of God better, we can extract principles to live by today. So in our last little bit of time, I want to think about how we could possibly do that in light of these laws we've talked about. So let's think about a couple of New Testament applications. Number one, when we see desperation, we see an opportunity to help, not take advantage. This is, I think, a principle we can extract from these laws we've spoken of. The logic of the laws against interest, taking interest toward your brother is that desperation is something to care about, not something to be preyed upon. The predatory lender is an evil person, Psalm says, Psalm 15 says, unworthy to ascend God's holy hill. He is someone on whom God's judgment is coming, Ezekiel says. He is someone who is ruining the community of faith, Nehemiah. But the covenant-keeping man lends to his brother without interest. So, no, we don't have a national covenant with God uh, with this as one of the 613 stipulations of the covenant. We don't have that. That's not how we understand that law. But we would be foolish, and I, I would argue we would be immoral to think that what that means is that we're now allowed to be loan sharks. Because, hey, we don't have to do that law. That means we can do whatever we want. We can charge however much interest we want. When Christians see someone in need, Christians see an opportunity to help, not an opportunity to profit. And remember, the Torah says this is particularly true with your brethren, which is also a New Testament emphasis. Galatians 6.10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household. That seems to embody the same logic of the law, which is you are to be good and generous and helpful to everyone, the law says, and in particular, in particular to your brother. And so when we see desperation, we see an opportunity to help, not take advantage. Now, let me put a little bit finer point on that with the second application. Following Christ does not alleviate this concern of the law. Actually, it intensifies this concern. Go with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. So we've seen the law of Moses' concern, this concern about helping the desperate man, uh, profiting off him. And I'm going to argue that when we begin to follow Jesus, that doesn't mean we can back away from that concern. Actually, it means we're even more concerned about it than, than perhaps a Jew would have been. So here's what I mean. You've read the Sermon on the Mount before. Do you remember what Jesus does over and over again early on in the sermon? He'll quote something from the law of Moses. You've heard that it was said. And then he'll answer with his own, but I say to you. And so, you know, he'll say, you've heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely. And then he says, but I say to you, not just don't swear falsely. He says, don't swear at all. Take no oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's no intensification of our words needed if we just always tell the truth. And so he calls us to a higher level of honesty and a higher level of transparency. And he does this with many subjects. When Jesus shows up, he calls people not to less holiness than Moses, but greater holiness than Moses. And so when we say we're not under the law of Moses, it doesn't mean we're free to be less holy. Actually, it means we should press in to be even more holy. So I've asked you to turn to Luke 6. This is uh, Luke's sort of version of the Sermon on the Mount, although this is perhaps a different time. It's often called the Sermon on the Plain. But he fleshes this out a little bit more in Luke 6 and verse 32. Look at what Jesus says here, Luke 6 and verse 32. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So we read what Moses said. Moses said, lend to your brother without collecting interest. But do you know what Jesus says here? Lend to your brother. No, not just lend to your brother, lend to your enemy without expecting repayment. And he says there at the end, God has given us, given to us in such a generous way that we can never repay. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And if we are his children, if we know we have received such mercy and generosity, we can find it in our hearts Not just to lend without interest, not to lend at all, but to give, is what he says. And so when we open up our New Testament, we don't say, well, I'm free from the law of Moses, I can do what I want. That's never what it means to come from Moses to Christ. It always means to achieve, to aspire to even greater holiness. Following Christ doesn't alleviate this concern, but intensifies it. Now let me say one final thing about just a hodgepodge of subjects. I don't have a lot to say I don't think about the sort of financial system that we inhabit today. Um, For example, nowhere in the Bible is there a magic number given as to when a loan becomes usurious, right? So maybe, you know, if you do a half a percent loan, that's a pretty low interest rate. I don't know any world in which that's usurious. If you have a 400% interest rate, I'm pretty sure that qualifies. Now, where in that it goes from one to the other, I have no clue. As we said in the beginning, we live in an economic system that is different in almost every way from the economic system of ancient Israel. I will say, usury does still occur in our world. You know, payday lenders charge something like 400% interest, and those loans are made to the most financially desperate people. If that's not usury, I don't know what is. You know, if, if you pay minimum payments on a big credit card balance, you're going to end up paying multiples of what you originally owed. And I think that's something to be aware of. Because I am aware of the text that we've studied, which, by the way, all the laws in the law of Moses speak to the lender about being generous. Um, there's not really as much about the borrower. There is a proverb about that. Proverbs 22 and verse 7, the borrower is slave to the lender. and talks about the dynamics of the sort of taking on debt. Because I'm aware of these texts and because I'm aware of passages like that, we can say as borrowers, we should exercise extreme caution when it comes to becoming a debtor and just to have our eyes wide open about that. That This is a problem. This has been a problem for thousands of years for a reason. There's danger that comes with it. I can also say this pretty resolutely and without qualification. A Christian should want no part in any scheme that sees the desperation of someone else as an opportunity for our profit. There is no world in which we should ever try to justify anything like that. So, that I found a very interesting question. I'm glad the person who asked it did ask it, uh, allowed me to get into some of that Law of Moses stuff. And you might not be happy about this, but it made me want to teach Leviticus sometimes. So, <laughs> get ready for that.
But uh, thank you for your attention. We always, uh, always enjoy our Q&A nights. If there's someone here that needs to uh, respond to God's invitation, we never like to leave off without doing that. If there's someone that needs to come and to respond in gratitude to the generosity of God who saved us when we were his enemies, who forgive our unforgivable, uh, our, our debt we can never pay ourselves, Jesus come in and pay the price. If you want to respond to that, Jesus, come forward now as we stand and sing to encourage you. Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Are all thy powers under Jesus' control? Is thy heart right with God? Does each moment abide in thy soul? Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God.